Today's episode comes not from Silicon Valley, but from the North African country of Morocco. Population, 37 million. The capital, Rabat. Languages, Arabic and Berber, with about one-third of Moroccan speaking French and a fifth speaking Spanish. Border countries, Algeria by land and Spain by sea. If you're in the U.S., chances are you buy your groceries at Walmart or Costco or BJ's or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. Well, you get the point. In fact, over 85% of the dollars spent on groceries in the U.S. is spent at massive retailers just like these. 85%. But in emerging markets like Morocco, it's the other way around. 85% of the dollars spent on groceries in Morocco is spent not at chains, but at locally owned, no-name mom-and-pop shops. And in these types of countries, especially in smaller towns, the owners of these stores, they don't sit in an office somewhere and collect profits. No, they, they run the stores themselves. They man the cash register, they manage inventory, they clean, they handle procurement, you name it. You see, these shops, they're a one-man show, and they drive their local economies. So one day, when Ismail Bakayat was at a local Casablanca shop buying a few things for home, he was interrupted. Interrupted by Coca-Cola. That is, the Coke supplier came by rather unexpectedly at the exact same time the shopkeeper was attending to Ismail. So without any staff to help him, the shopkeeper had to decide. Attend to Coke at the risk of missing his delivery or attend to Ismail at the risk of losing a customer. Well, Coke won, and Ismail... He was left out to dry. But despite the frustration, a light bulb went off in Ismail's head. There had to be an easier way for Moroccan shopkeepers to coordinate procurement and schedule deliveries without, well, pissing off customers. And so, voila. The idea for Shari was born. A B2B e-commerce marketplace to digitize procurement for Moroccan mom-and-pop stores. And only 18 months later, today, what started as an annoying day at the grocery store has turned into a company that's just been valued at $90 million. Yeah, you heard that right. 18 months, $90 million valuation, Morocco. Shari's story, it's only just starting, and it's one that could end with Shari being the first ever unicorn super app of French-speaking Africa. I'm David Zabinski. And I am Ismail Belkayat. And this is not from Silicon Valley. Stories of trial and triumph from founders in emerging and frontier economies. Ismail, marhaba, bienvenue, and welcome to Not From Silicon Valley. So as always, as you know, I like to ask guests first, tell me a bit about where you grew up. So I'm born and raised in Rabat, which is the administrative capital of Morocco, uh, which I left when I was uh, 17, right after high school. Okay, you said administrative capital, which is a, I suppose, preface I usually don't hear before the word capital. Why is that? Now, the reason is, uh, you know, first, when I discuss with people, uh, you know, from all over the world, and I say I'm from Rocco, usually they answer, oh, we love the Prince Albert II of Morocco, of uh, Monaco. And then I said, no, 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 it's not Monaco, it's Morocco. And then I end up explaining, hey, you've heard about Casablanca, the movie with uh, uh, Amphrey Bogart. And then, yes, Morocco, oh, Marrakesh. So everybody knows about Marrakesh and Casablanca, and unfortunately not about the capital, 
which is uh, Rabat. So the king lives in, we have a king in Morocco. He lives in Rabat, but the real economy happens in Casablanca. And the tourists, when they come, go go to uh, Marrakech. This is why I said administrati- administrative capital. Yeah, you're talking to a dude who, when living in Madrid as a student, on a student budget, took that one-hour Ryanair flight and went to Marrakech as a tourist and spent a few days there in a Riyadh. So I, I can tell you all about that. But what I can't tell you is a thing about Rabat. So tell me, man, what, what's it like growing up there? What's Rabat like? Yes, um, Rabat uh, is well known for being the city in which you find the embassies, the ministries, so all the administrative stuff. And as you may imagine, uh, usually people who work in that kind of uh, environment are more, uh, you know, boring than uh, normal people. <laughs> they have to meet with some uh, rules. Uh, and obviously that has a consequence on the city, which is a great city but a boring city in a sense that uh, um, there are not so many clubs, uh, restaurants as you may find in Marrakech or Casablanca. However, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a cool city in a sense that they have uh, uh, made everything possible to make it look like a European city when it comes to urbanism and uh, architecture. Yeah, you mentioned European as if Rabat is like a European city with European architecture, but Despite being Moroccan, Ismail, you've got this kind of movie-like, for lack of a better word, sexy Parisian French accent. So talk a little bit about that. Did you go to French schools in Rabat? Is there a big French influence there? I, I, you know, I'm doing my best not to have the French accent, but if you uh, highlight it, I, I can try to have it for the next sentences. Mais s'il vous plaît, monsieur. Yes. So I went to France uh, school, and then uh, right after it, I went to Paris to continue my uh, university and spent a few years in Paris before moving to other uh, European uh, universities. So see, I could, I could, you know, get a strong uh, French accent, but I do my best not to show it. Man, you'd be quite the catch with American girls. See, I think it's a mix between uh, an Arabic and a French accent that gives it. I'm not sure it's sexy. You are the first one to, to say it. I would have loved to, <laughs> to hear more girls saying that it's sexy. Unfortunately, it's, I don't think it's the case. But yes, I, I, you know, I grew up in Morocco, then I left to Europe. I lived in Paris, in London, in Madrid. And then I flew over the Atlantic to, uh, for my grad studies to upstate New York, to Cornell University for my master's. And then I started working uh, uh, back in Paris for the Boston Consulting Group, which is a strategic consulting firm. So you did a lot of your studies abroad outside of Morocco. Was there a reason for that? Is the quality of education in Morocco at the university level just not as competitive? Uh, it's a good question. No, to be honest, in Morocco, there are, there are a lot of great schools and uh, cool universities are, are in Morocco. And honestly, people who stay in Morocco usually have a great uh, level of, uh, you know, business and engineering and understanding uh, in general. Myself, as explained, for some reason, I ended up going to a French high school. And, you know, the mentality in the French system is uh, very elitist. Uh, they have this track uh, for the best students to um, follow, which is called the class préparatoire. It's usually a two years uh, really intensive 
preparation uh, for what they call Grand École, which are the top uh, universities for business and uh, and uh, engineering. So, um, and the Moroccan government love a Moroccan student who basically can uh, afford, not afford, but uh, uh, end up uh, being accepted in these great schools. And whenever you are accepted in the top three business schools or top three engineering schools, it's the government of Morocco who pays for your tuition. Oh, wow. So I was fortunate enough uh, to end up in Paris for my prep school. I was ranked among the, the best students there. So I ended up in a great French school called École Supérieure de Commerce de, de Paris. And uh, the Moroccan government paid uh, for my tuition, who basically allowed me to save some money to, to again, uh, be on a, on a still on, on a student a student budget as you said earlier but still uh, be able to make the most of my student life so the moroccan government they'll fund the top students education abroad and what hopes of a return in the future to work there what if they don't they have you sign a document that says that uh, right after uh, basically uh, your degree and few years of experience you have basically to go back to Morocco. Oh, okay. So I signed up this paper because I wanted to go back to Morocco and participate in the economical development. Okay, and for the students that were educated at home in Morocco, what types of jobs do they usually pursue after graduating? Yeah, so again, in Morocco, they have a great level, mainly in engineering, in medicines, and in business schools. So usually those who end up staying in Morocco uh, start working uh, when when they go to good schools in Morocco because obviously in every country you have a ranking for all the universities. So those who go to the top universities end up working for the best uh, multinationals. So in Morocco we have great multinationals in uh, different industries, including FMCG. For instance, PNG is based in Morocco. Wow, Procter and Gamble, okay, and and tech. In the tech industry, we have. Uh, uh, Microsoft, for instance, who has offices here in Morocco. So obviously, those who who get out from the best schools work for the best uni- for the best FMCGs, and those who uh, graduate from average uh, universities end up working for local companies. So back to the multinationals. A lot of them would choose Morocco, and I guess Casablanca specifically for a North African or African headquarters. And I suppose that's because, what, it's close to Europe, it's French-speaking. There are many reasons why uh, big multinationals decide to have Casablanca as a headquarter. Uh, first of all, Morocco is uh, the fifth uh, country in Africa in terms of uh, GDP. Ah, I didn't know that. Uh, then it's obviously next to Spain. Uh, people don't usually know it, but from the the the, clo- the I mean south of uh, of Spain, which is Algeciras, to the north of Morocco, which is Tetouan, the two closest points are only twelve kilometers away from one inter- each other. So it tells you how close it is. Right. Then uh, Morocco is obviously has a great influence on French speaking Africa. And you have many uh, Moroccan banks, uh, basically, who are based uh, in in other uh, French-speaking countries of of Africa, such as uh, Senegal, for instance. So when you start having business in Morocco, it's basically easy for you uh, to uh, keep moving to other French-speaking countries because your, um, let's say, um, 
you get help from Morocco to go to that can, to that kind of other countries. Okay, what do you mean by help? Uh, the government has passed many laws, basically, to attract as many foreign investments as possible in Morocco to have them then expand their operations outside Morocco. And let me give only one example. There is a place um, in Casablanca called Casablanca Finance City. It's actually a status that you can get from the local government uh, in case you can prove that from Morocco you can move your operations outside Morocco. And if you get this status, basically you get some uh, tax advantages such as not paying for the first five years of operation any income revenue. So uh, we see so many great uh, multinationals coming to Morocco to, to set up an office. So let me get this straight. It's an incentive for companies around the world to set up in Morocco and Casablanca Finance City and make their African hub right there. Exactly. It's like, it's like a tax-free zone to attract uh, investors who would love to, to invest in Africa so they can set up their business in Casablanca and run it from Morocco to cover uh, Africa. And, you know, aside from the proximity to Europe and to the rest of Africa, the government incentives, the French-speaking, it's also Arabic-speaking, right? True, true. Uh, Morocco has, the, has this great uh, heritage that makes it uh, speak many languages. So you said uh, we, we've been colonized by the French uh, during more than 50 years, which made many people here in Morocco speak uh, uh, French. We also had a few cities. As we speak, there are two main cities who are Spanish, but based in Morocco. One is called Ceuta and the other is Melilla. They are in the north and are inside Morocco, but are owned today by Spain, which make many Moroccans, especially those who live around, speak perfectly Spanish. And I am one of them. Then we also, south of Morocco was uh, back at that time colonized by the Germans. And this is why there are many Germans coming uh, today uh, to south of Morocco, Agadir more especially for, for tourism. And Morocco, before being Arab, was a barbarian country. So in uh, the Sahara region, you still have a lot of barbarians who speak a language called uh, uh, barbarian. So, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a melting pot in a sense that uh, we, we speak many l languages and have many cultures. And that's obviously help us have a, a, a kind of influence on, on the region. Of course, I mean, it's very important in the global economy. So let's put the lesson on Morocco on pause for a sec, Ismail, and, and go back to your story. So you mentioned you were at BCG as a consultant in Casablanca. What happened after that? So I, I worked a few years uh, for BCG, great time because obviously uh, you are still young and have a lot of responsibility and end up meeting some important people in, in the country and the key players. So it was great. But one day you, you wake up and you just realize that you've been uh, following all the advice that have been given to you uh, over the, your life. So myself, I was told that I should have... Uh, uh, go to high school in scientific major and then to prep school and then uh, to one of the top uh, business schools. And then in the top business schools, they told me you still have, you, you should keep working hard to get into these top uh, uh, employers. And BCG was one of them. And I had to go through 10 
interviews to be accepted. And then I ended up in BCG, was great. But after three years, I was still told you still have to work hard to end up being a partner. And then you wake up, you are 20, 28 years old, and you just realize that uh, that's not necessarily what you wanted to, to be. Uh, and uh, you do uh, something called uh, an introspection and you ask yourself, are you happy? What is, what makes you really happy in your life? And then you decide uh, to basically do what you love. Yeah, man, I, I just want to cut you off right there. You know, I've got so many friends that are BCG, McKinsey, Bain, Deloitte, and they're, they're building these tremendous skill sets, these tremendous networks, tremendous careers, but you know, not one of them feels fulfilled or even rewarded exactly you, you basically you you keep advising others on what they should do uh so the, the ones who get the rewards are those who get your advice execute them and succeed and you as an advisor you, you may feel uh, happy because you have helped others but one day you just feel that you need to help yourself first well you went off and did that right seven years ago you took the leap of faith and started something what was it good question so uh, first one that worked, uh, you will find it funny, but uh, uh, I work. I used to work for BCG. Told you, and you, when you work there, you get some uh, uh, tools that basically help you prepare slides. You know, when you work at BCG, you have to prepare a lot of slides, and we were provided with uh, an app. Uh, called Thinkcell that is basically uh, helping you uh, work faster. So when I resigned, I still had to do some uh, slides for myself to prepare business plans and stuff like this, but I didn't have the tool because I wasn't working anymore for BCG. So uh, I had to find out how to get the tool, but being from Morocco, I contacted the company and they told me, sorry, but we don't have any reseller in Morocco, so we are not able to help you out. You will have to contact someone in France or in Europe to get your license. So this is when I told them, hey, I just quit BCG and I would love to be your uh, reseller in Morocco. So why don't you give me the representation here? So I became the Thinkcell uh, reseller in Morocco and the, the, the website is still, uh, the company is still working really well. It's called Thinkcell Morocco, thinkcellmaroc.com. And basically we are today uh, uh, distributing the licenses of this company to the main uh, multinationals. So we have uh, about uh, uh, 80 or 100 clients who've bought from us something like uh, the thousand license that we basically uh, uh, renew for them uh, annually. So we have great annual uh, 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 recurring revenue that made this first company be uh, profitable uh, quite uh, fast. And then uh, with basically the, the money I could get out of it, I moved to another business that also came from uh, my years at BCG. But basically, when I used to be a consultant there, uh, the office was still small and the partners were still in Paris. So they were coming from time to time to visit clients. And usually as a consultant, you help with the logistics. So I remember many times my partners coming to Casablanca and I had to send them a driver, a car with a driver. So I could find many great luxurious cars in Morocco. But then the drivers were uh, wearing jalabas and they... Sorry. They were wearing what? Oh, sorry. Uh, Jalabas are the traditional uh, Moroccan uh, tunic uh, dress. 
And it's basically the kind of dress you wear before going to bed, right? So basically, you you are a great partner. You arrive at the airport. There is a great car coming to pick you up. But the guy who is driving it has no clue about what is a great service. Okay, got it. So when I realized that, I just uh, felt that I could start a ground transportation company that is called Votre Chauffeur. Uh, and which is today the, the leading ground transportation in Morocco. We have above 100 cars that we own, and we have another 500 cars provided by third-party players. And basically, our main business is to train the drivers to basically open the door, give you a, a, a bottle of water, ask you what you want to listen in the radio, charge your phone in case you want to charge it, drive slowly, not speak on the phone while they are driving, and so on. So obviously, with that kind of service, I could easily sign up with the biggest companies of Morocco. And as we speak, uh, there are the top 500 uh, companies in Morocco who are using Votre Chauffeur, basically whenever to do, they need to go to the airport or move from a city to another. And the company was great, was successful, and I could... Uh, uh, basically, um, sell uh, uh, some of my shares to Avis Car Rentals, who who is today running the the company. Man, I feel like the stories behind these two businesses alone, right? I mean, the Think Cell distributor, and here's a chance to use my really shit French. So sorry in advance. Uh, these could be podcast episodes on their own, and we haven't even gotten to Shari yet. It's really impressive, man. I'll tell you, to me, the definition of entrepreneurship is knowing how to make the most of the opportunities that come to you. So people who become an entrepreneur because they want to be entrepreneurs are not necessarily successful people. But people who become entrepreneurs because they found that there is a real issue that they have to solve are usually those who become successful. So I keep uh, advising people to stay aware of all the problems that happen around them because it's out of problems that you can make a great company. And myself, again, the, my two first companies that succeeded were companies that were first answering problems that myself faced a few weeks or uh, a few months uh, earlier. Okay, so this is a great segue. We're having this chat not to talk about reselling tech or selling chauffeur equity to Avis. We're here to talk about Sherry. Yeah, so maybe just before Sherry, uh, when I sold my shares from Votre Chauffeur, I, I, I traveled to Dubai and I was fortunate uh, to meet with a person who quickly became my mentor, someone who basically trained me to become who I am today. And if he listened to us, I would like to say hi, but his name is Mikael Lahiani, a great uh, entrepreneur in the Middle East, North Africa uh, region. Uh, I was fortunate to team up with him to set up uh, one uh, a branch of his great group uh, called Property Finder uh, in Morocco. That was, it's still Sarouti.ma. And it's the leading property portal in Morocco. So thanks to this great experience, I learned the business of, of marketplace because basically we are a property portal and we bring online uh, offer and, and demand. 
and uh, through the training I got from uh, Michael, basically I felt like I was then uh, able to um, to handle at the f at at the same time marketplace and logistic. And when you mix logistic and marketplace, logistic because of votre chauffeur, because basically we had to do a lot of algorithms to optimize the routing of our drivers. And marketplace because of Sabuti.ma, we had basically to work on uh, improving, uh, you know, the user experience of of the, the the those who were willing to to buy a house. And when you mix these two skills, you end up with Sherry. Yalla, man, I, I'm dying at this point. We we gotta get to the good stuff. Can we get into it? What was that initial problem you identified and sought to solve with Sherry? Was there a light bulb moment like there was with ThinkSale and and Votechefe? Yeah, but in, in order to answer this question, I have to, uh, need to give a little bit more context. Okay, uh, even for the listener, because uh, for them to understand the 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 the, the, the idea, I, I need first to to explain it in a two liners, and then give some context to um, help them understand how I ended up doing this. Perfect. It's very simple. It's a mobile app for local retailers, such as mom and pop shops, allowing them to order anything they want and get delivered in less than 24 hours, right? So these guys have problems to get their procurements. They just need to download the app. It's a supermarket. They can buy whatever they want and get it delivered. So it's B2B e-commerce. So I, how I ended up finding out about the, the, the issue, I need to give more context. So first, in the meantime, I met with my wife, Sofia, uh, and I would have loved her to be with us today on the call, but unfortunately she couldn't uh, join. But Sofia has the same profile as me. She's born in Morocco. She left when she was 17, went to uh, uh, Montreal, uh, McGill University, became a civil engineer, and then worked as an investment banker for BNP Paribas, and then got hired by McKinsey. Um, as a strategy consultant. So we got married and myself, I was an entrepreneur and she was a consultant. So she was sent many times to Africa, like South Africa, Nigeria, Ivory Coast. And as an Arab and a Moroccan husband, obviously I uh, didn't want her to spend too much time by herself uh, there. So I decided to move wherever she was moving. So we moved together to Johannesburg, to Lagos, um, in order to cover some uh, uh, projects she had. And it was mainly digitizing some FM, the distribution of some FMCG companies. So there we found out about all the pain points uh, the small shops have in order to get their procurements. Okay, and then? Then we came back to Morocco. And since we live together, we go quite often for our groceries together. And in that kind of countries, which are basically the developing countries, usually the FMCG spending goes through the small mom and pop shops and not through the big uh, supermarkets. I know you guys in the US go to uh, Walmart, but us in Morocco, we go to the next door shop in which we get our groceries. All right, so so let me get this straight. I'm in the US. I want to pick up a carton of milk, a loaf of bread, a dozen eggs. I go to Walmart or Costco or maybe a more local yet still regional chain and get it all there. But if I'm in Morocco, 
I wouldn't have that experience, right? Exactly. So uh, it's completely different. So just to explain what is a small retailer in Morocco, they are usually next to your place because you'll find one in every single street. They usually accept only cash. They don't get, they don't have a bank account. And there are usually your bankers in a sense that when you need some money, you go, they lend you money, right? Wait, what? So <laughs> these mom and pop retailers that sell you a carton of milk, they'll also give you a loan? Yes, they are basically, they play a huge role in our economies because they are the ones giving you loans whenever you need some cash. Okay, and is there collateral or is it more of a relationship-based loan? The collateral is, uh, remember, they are, they are next to your place. So they know where you live. They know your family because all your family is their clients. They know where you work. They know when you get paid. And they know that they have no risk of defects. So they are the only ones trusting you. <laughs> and because you find one in every single street, uh, each one of them has in average something like 300 clients. Just to give you an example, uh, some figures in Morocco, there are two 100,000 shops and there are 40 million inhabitants. So each, each shop has around 200 clients, right? So it's easy for them to know in details the life of the clients. So they do their credit risk assessment and basically they are the ones uh, lending you money. And this is why they play a huge role in the economy. And this is why we still need that kind of people. And this is why we believe that for the coming decades, these Guys, we still play a huge role in the FMCG uh, spending. Today, they represent 85% of the, of the spending. When a Moroccan goes by his grocery, $85 out of 100 goes to the small shops and only 15 goes to the big supermarkets as the ones you know in the US, which is the contrary in the US. Okay, so 85% of the money spent on groceries in Morocco is spent at a no-name mom-and-pop shop down the street. Exactly. And not only in Morocco, in all the developing countries, in average, 85% of the grocery spending goes through these small shops. And they are usually a one-man show. One guy behind the counter working by himself, and you ask him what he what you want, he turns, get it, and gives it to you. Which has, as a consequence, um, uh, led, leads to a situation in which they are struggling with their procurement. And let me give you the example to answer your initial question that was, how did you find out about the issue? Easy. I went to see my shop owner. I asked for uh, some milk. And while I was paying him, he got the visit of a supplier called Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola comes every other day to visit the shop and sell some bottles. While I was with the guy paying him, he had to let me wait because he had to handle his supplier. In case he let the supplier wait, the supplier leaves because it's a driver who needs to meet his objectives of the day. And if he doesn't buy Coca-Cola, he has an opportunity cost, mainly because if the client comes and don't find Coca-Cola, he will move to another shop. There is one in every street to buy what he wants. So myself as a client, I was left waiting while the guy was negotiating the price of his Coca-Cola. And because I am a, a UP, a, a young urban professional, I didn't want to wait too much. So I left. So I felt like he had an opportunity cost by letting me leave. 
And uh, I came on another moment of the day and he had nothing to do, no client and no supplier. And I felt, whoa, in some moments of the day, he's super busy. He needs an assistance. And in some other time of the day, he has nothing to do. Okay, so in summary, the shopkeeper couldn't tell Coke to screw off because, well, they're Coca-Cola. <laughs> he needs their stock in his fridge. But he also couldn't tell you to screw off because, well, you would just go right down the street to another shop and, and buy what you need, which is what you did, right? So with all this being said, you wanted to figure out a way to organize digitally a shopkeeper's procurement from his supplier to keep situations like this from happening again. Exactly. Okay, so what was the first step? Good question. So uh, my first step was to spend uh, a week at the shop. So basically, I stopped doing uh, everything I was doing and spent some time in the shop trying to find out what was his uh, average day. So this is basically how I found out that he had nothing to do from in some moments. And this is also how I found out that he was visited with from by, by some suppliers. And other suppliers don't necessarily visit him because sometimes the cost of the drop is higher than the margin you could get from the visit. So there are many distributors who do the maths and prefer to do weighted distribution instead of numerical distribution. So they skip many shops because the sh there is no economical uh, reasons why the, 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 the economical units doesn't uh, add up. So uh, when I understood that, uh, I realized that these guys, in order to solve the issue, they close their shop because, again, they are a one-man show. They close their shop and go to big supermarkets outside the city where they can buy what they need for their shop. And these big supermarkets are usually B2B supermarkets outside the city because the real estate is less expensive there. And uh, you need to rent a truck or use your own trucks or pay for gas and go there. And obviously, because your shop is closed, uh, you have an opportunity cost uh, when you go there because when your clients come, they don't find you. So I told myself, great, not only these guys are suffering with their supply because they have to close their shop and go. But plus, I know a place in which I can find all my future clients. Of course. What'd you do? Just stop everyone and on their way out and introduce yourself? I printed some flyers explaining what, what my app was doing. I went to the parking lot of this big supermarket that is outside Casablanca. And I was waiting for the shop owners, uh, the grocery stores owners to come out of the shop to place the goods they just bought in the trunk of their uh, cars or truck. And while they were doing this, I was distributing the flyers and telling them, hey guys, with Cherry, you don't need any more to uh, travel to get your goods. From where you are, just order and I commit to deliver, deliver you for free at the same price in less than 24 hours. So they... Basically, I had uh, hundreds, if not thousands of clients who were uh, listening to what I was saying and who basically tried the service until the day I got uh, kicked out from the parking lot because the owners of uh, the supermarket f found out what I was doing. So in the early days, getting goods to retailers within 24 hours in Morocco, how'd you do that? <laughs> 
So back at that time, I was unable to do that because, uh, uh, you know, I am a strong believer of uh, of the of the lean startup model. So my first clients, uh, basically, I had nothing back at that time, only the app. So they used to download the app. And thank God there were no so many. They were ordering. And when I used to receive the order, I was myself going to the uh, B2B supermarket I told you about outside the, the city, going inside, buying the goods, paying at the cashier and reselling at the same price without any margin and burning a lot of cash and a lot of time, obviously. But at least it made me understood that I had the finger on something that could become big. I had some basically traction at the beginning, a kind of proof of concept that I could show to some investors, proving them that with their money, I could get a warehouse, some trucks, and I could industrialize this business. And uh, together we could create some, uh, some, some value. So yeah, I started with nothing. Again, those who believe that in order to start an idea, you need a lot of funding. That's completely false. You can start bootstrapping. In my case, again, I was the one doing, uh, receiving the orders, doing the client service, uh, answering the phone, driving my truck, my car. It wasn't even a truck, buying from the supermarket, going to the cashier, paying with my own working capital, uh, delivering the goods and making sure that the client was happy and was uh, again willing to, to order. And only when I felt that uh, I had some traction. I basically decided to invest real money in the, in the business. All right. So at this point, you saw you had some traction given this incredibly inefficient supply chain. Once you put in some real money into the app, how was the response? So maybe one of my first mistakes, and I'll tell you, the mistakes are the best thing that could happen to a, to a founder because it's out of mistakes that you learn, that you improve, that you iterate, and that you end up uh, succeeding. Uh, but my first mistake was uh, I went to see again the shop next to my place, spent some time with him. He uh, explained to me the features he wanted to see. I went back to my office, hired some uh, developers, worked with them. I, and I remember myself closing the door of my office for about a month with the guys uh, in, uh, in sprints in order to come up with this great, uh, uh, not great, but with an MVP that had many features, great design, uh, great user experience. Uh, and then I went back to see my client. Uh, and then I realized that this MVP would never work. First, because he, he had an old phone, an old Android phone, and we were using the last libraries that are, were not compatible with old phones. So you spend one month of time, of energy, and money into an MVP that wouldn't even be usable? Exact. Not only because the technology wasn't good, but also because the guys uh, don't necessarily read uh, French or Arabic. They know how to calculate. That's what they are asked to do. So uh, I had a lot of texts. So I realized, I realized that I had to replace the text by pictures. Also, they had big fingers for some reasons. Uh, their average fingers was bigger than mine. So I had to come up with bigger uh, icons uh, because myself, I could click on the app, but they, they couldn't. They had to, uh, they, 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 they didn't. So I, I had to come up with a much easier that would have uh, app that would have taken me probably one week to develop instead of four weeks if I did know the very first day what they were expecting to receive. And this is why I keep saying that 
guys, spend, you as future founders who listen to us, spend as much time as possible with your clients before starting doing anything. Right. Because the only ones who know what they need are the clients and not yourself. You as a founder will never know better than the clients what the clients want. So please put yourself in the, in the shoes, spend time with them, try to get inside their mind, find out what they want, and then go close your office during one month and develop what they want, but not before doing what I just said. Okay, so you re-engineer the app. It's compatible with older phones. It's picture-focused. It has bigger icons for these bigger fingers. <laughs> What happens next? Yeah, and then I provide them with, and I just think that all the users will start using it to buy, uh, uh, to go over the, the 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 user journey and end up buying on it. But then I realize that they use it not to order, but they use it to see the prices. And once they see the prices, they basically open their WhatsApp and send a voice message to me saying, hey, Ismail, how are you? It's been a long time. I saw that in your app, you have some good promotions. Please, could you deliver me this and this and this and this before tomorrow? Okay, and so you say, guys, the whole point of the app is not to order through me, but through the app. No, but I don't do that. I answer the voice message and I say, yes, with pleasure. I will deliver <laughs> you tomorrow. So my, my next move was to hire a bunch of great ladies with nice voices whose job was basically to listen to the WhatsApp messages, make the order on behalf of the shop owners on my app, call back the shop owners to make sure that the order is correct, and then confirm the order. And... Uh, obviously, the shop owners uh, used to talk with these lovely ladies. And then instead of calling me or sending me WhatsApps to me, called back the lovely ladies to tell them, hey, I want another thing for my shop and so on. And that basically worked for the first months in which basically all my clients were calling my call center, speak with the ladies and ask what, what they wanted. Okay, but this wouldn't be sustainable, would it? I mean... The salaries for your call center staff, that's an added cost that you'd have to account for either by increasing your prices and not being competitive or operating at a loss. What'd you do? I started sending to these guys SMSs because I had their phone numbers and also uh, WhatsApps telling them, hey, we have some promotions that are exclusive to the app. In order to get this great pricing, you will have to order on the app and not call the call center. So I had to find a solution to, to basically get rid of the, the ladies. But then I realized that the, I would never get rid of the ladies. And let me explain why. The role of the ladies is very important. And thank God I started with them. Because whenever I onboard a new client and I keep onboarding every day a new client, I have first to send them uh, someone to their store. I call these people ambassadors. I hire in my team, I have a sales rep that I call ambassador, whose job is to go meet with the shop owners, the small grocery stores owners, and train them on how to use the app. They basically set up an account. 
show them how to use the app and usually try to make the first orders with them. Then I realized that these guys are still not autonomous. In order to keep ordering from me, they either send me a WhatsApp or I need someone to call them to tell them, hey, it's been a long time you haven't ordered. So I have the team of ladies whose job is basically to call the newcomers, the newbies, and tell them, hey, it's been uh, two days that you haven't ordered. Why don't you order? And then after in average 10 orders, that's when we send them SMS and WhatsApp with promotions and we tell them, hey, we have exclusive promotions on the app. There are some SKUs, some uh, items that you can find only on the app. There are some prices that you can find only on the app. You can get a 1% cash back only if you use the app, only if you use our digital wallet. And this is how we progressively convert them from being people who need humans to make orders to people being autonomous in their orders. But that takes up to three to six months. Yeah, I, I mean, this cost of customer acquisition for you, that's very unique to emerging markets, right? I mean, the time it would take for a customer to adapt the app technology, you wouldn't have that delay in like the US, for example. Exact. But that's the role of a venture capitalist. When you go, when you go see a VC or a business angel and you tell him, look, look at my cohorts, those who came in the business six months ago are today fully autonomous. But it took me six months and a lot of investment to have them become autonomous. And today I can keep growing as long as I can found the onboarding of new clients for six months with human resources. Okay, so, so that's a great segue. You, you tell these VCs that it takes time, it takes some money to onboard these clients. But when I do, they're really sticky. Who'd you speak to? So I couldn't go knock on the doors of the big names. So I had to look for local investors. And thank God there is uh, this French telecom operator called Orange, who has a, a VC based in Dakar, Senegal, and who is covering Africa. So basically, I went to see them, uh, discussed with them, uh, and then had them invest uh, in in Sherry at, back at that time at, at, at a low cap, obviously, because they were the first ones. But obviously, when you get your first VCs, that's when uh, the doors uh, opens to, to, to the others. I mean, as your first venture investor or not, Orange is huge. And that was what, a year ago? Yeah, it was a year ago. Okay, and Orange invested how much? At what valuation? Uh, they, they invested $180,000. And the valuation back at that time was, it was still okay because it, was, it, it wasn't a safe. It was a convertible note in which they had a 5% interest rate. So basically, uh, they didn't take many risks, but I could negotiate the cap at $10 million. Okay, and, and how were numbers at that point? What was your GMV? Yeah, back at that time, the GMV was around 600K. Uh, back at that time, my, my gross revenue was uh, about 5%. So my, real my, my gross revenue was about $30,000, but that's gross. Then if you look at net, uh, I had quite nothing. Okay, and then? Also, I, I went to see a guy who used to work with me at BCG. He was more senior, obviously. And he became um, the general partner of a private equity fund uh, who has under assets something like a billion dollars. So I went to see him and I told him, hey, you remember me from the BCG time? And I was a, quite a serious guy. So, so he obviously liked me and told me, of course, I remember you. And I said, 
this and I have this startup. And then he replied saying, I'm sorry, I am a private equity. I don't do VC. And then I say, hey, why don't you do an exception? Uh, remember, we had great time together. Plus, I have some traction. So when he looked at my deck, he just realized that I could be his first VC investment. So the guy basically trusts me. So if he's listening also, I want to say thanks. And he invested a million dollars. Um, so yeah, I ended up starting with, uh, with, with him, with Orange and a third VC called P1 Ventures, a guy called Mikael, uh, who's also investing in, in Africa. And then? Uh, then I wanted to raise my cap and keep, uh, keep, uh, raising money. That's when you go usually meet with the Chinese VC because uh, Chinese VC is easy to, to convince. You just show him your last cap and he usually doubles it to come uh, to join. So then I moved to a $20 million uh, cap. Oh no, maybe uh, before I got accelerated by plug and play. So plug and play is this famous uh, Silicon Valley investor who basically was also looking for uh, Moroccan uh, targets. And I am lucky to be the first company in which Plug and Play invested. And I am also lucky to have spoken with their uh, president called uh, Saeed, who uh, basically wanted to talk to the first company he was investing in, in Morocco, even though the investment was small, but I spent about an hour, uh, an hour discussing with him. Uh, and yes, so I had the French brand, I had the American brand with Plug and Play. Then Plug and Play invested at a cap of 10 millions. Then I went to see the Chinese brand who invested at a 20 millions cap. So I was quite a star in Morocco in a sense that I raised money at 20 millions. I got to wrap my head around this. So you went from having an app that wouldn't work on your customers' phones. And six months later, you're raising money from European, American, Chinese VCs at a $20 million valuation? Correct. In six months time, we could create a six, uh, $20 million uh, valuation company. And today we are only 18 months old and the last valuation, the last offer we received was at 99.0. What? We closed our seed at 70.70, but as we speak, we still uh, are receiving offers that we haven't accepted yet, but the current valuation is 99.0. In 18 months? A $90 million valuation? In Morocco, because $90 million valuation is today nothing when you are in San Francisco. But the real challenge here is to be able to do that in North Africa, in a French-speaking country such as Morocco. That's the real challenge. All right, so <laughs> I got to ask this. You've obviously got an awesome cap table, orange plug-and-play. You're also a YC alum. You're in a pretty cool e-commerce space. You're first to market. I, I get that. But this type of seed valuation, and let, let's discuss the fundamentals. What makes Shari so interesting? Yeah. So so no, you, I mentioned p p Plug and Play and Orange, but I have another today 25 great names on my cap table. So I, I, I can tell you who they are because we, it's no public. But you'll see, we've, we, we've attracted a great of, uh, a great bunch of people. Uh, but to answer your question, um, listen, uh, it's a good question. And I'll tell you why. When you are only 18 months old, when you are the founder of the company, when you are the guy trying to raise the money and your valuation reached $90 million, your first feeling is, hey, 
am I not uh, ripping off the investors? How come it could worth so much? Uh, it's called syndrome de l'imposteur. Imposter syndrome, yeah, sure. So you just ask yourself if you are not fooling anyone. But then you realize that uh, when you let an investor invest in your company, he is the one fooling you. And let me explain why. And, and I am fully convinced on that. Ooh, mama, <laughs> this will be good. First of all, myself as a founder, I had to be fully convinced about what I was doing, about the success I could get in order to convince the others. Because in order to convince the others, you have to be convinced yourself. And the others, what they see is a startup founder who has ambition, who knows where he goes and who knows how to execute. And myself, I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly my market and I know exactly how I'm going to execute it. And to be honest, I don't need to be a superstar. I don't need to have a crystal ball. I just need to see what my fellow entrepreneurs in other countries have done before me. When you look at Africa, you have this great unicorn in Nigeria called Tread Depot, who is doing exactly what I am doing, but they started two years before me and they are leading the path and they are showing me how to do it. When you look at Kenya, they have Sokowatch, who is doing exactly the same and they are, they are being successful. When you look at Egypt, they have Max AB. They just raised $55 million a month ago at a $400 million valuation, mainly because they are in Cairo and Cairo is four times the size of Morocco. Myself, I know that there are 200,000 shops in Morocco that I can go get. And mechanically speaking, my GMV will keep growing because I'm solving a real issue. Okay, perfect. So let's say in Morocco, a TAM of 200,000 shops. How many do you currently have? So I'm only tapping 3% of, of these shops. So today we have 6,000 uh, monthly users when there are 200,000 shops. So imagine we closed last year, uh, last month at $2.3 million GMV with only 3% penetration rates. And we could do 33 times more than that. So I could end up doing a $90 million monthly GMV in probably three years if I keep moving at this pace. Look, I don't know the multiples in African FMCG e-commerce, but those kinds of figures, shit, that probably make you a unicorn. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, that's not probably. We will become the next uh, unicorn, and that's mechanical. So again, when I tell you when I let an investor join at $90 million, I am offering him to multiply his investment by at least 11 in less than two, three years. So I am the one giving him a, a, a rose of flowers and not the other way around. Well said. Uh, Ismail, man, what's the future like for Shari? I mean, if we apply the same business model to other unpenetrated French-African-speaking countries, uh, Tunisia, Ivory Coast, Senegal, where's the ceiling? You know, I, I, I want to say uh, sky is the limit, but today uh, sky doesn't make you sound ambitious, especially when you see uh, the guys from, uh, you know, <laughs> the Tesla and the Amazon who are now uh, flying outside, outside the uh, Earth. Uh, I want to say it's not sky anymore, our limit. It's the universe, our limit. And I'll tell you why. Um, again, we started with 
a vertical called B2B e-commerce. Then we move to fintech. Then we are moving to e-commerce B2C. Then we will be moving to becoming a super app, providing all of our users with many services, including transportation, including bill payment, money transfer, remittance, uh, e-gov services, and so on and so on. My ambition today is to become, in the coming years, the WeChat or the Grab of French-speaking Africa. And I know, again, exactly how to do that. So many people told me, hey, what's your exit strategy? You will end up selling to the big players you talked about earlier, the MaxApp, Trade Depot, and so on. One day, these heavily founded companies who are now focusing on English-speaking Africa will end up coming to French-speaking Africa. Instead of going greenfield, they will probably buy an existing player. My answer to that is no. Why would I sell a company that still has way to go? The objective over the next decade is basically to become the first super app of French-speaking Africa. And I am quite positive on my ability and the ability of my co-founder and my great team to succeed. And also, I believe the trust I have from my VCs uh, will help me succeed in that journey. <laughs> Man, I I've spoken to a lot of founders and I don't think I've ever seen as much conviction as I do in you, man. But, you know, as you look at the next decade to be this super app of French-speaking Africa, surely there'll be challenges, no? What would those be? Yeah, yeah, there, there are many. Obviously, uh, obviously, competition coming from the English-speaking Africa is much is better founded than 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 us, mainly because their original market is bigger than us. So obviously. Uh, their valuation is, uh, is uh, their GMV get bigger and their valuation get bigger. D just so you know, the multiples in our industry is three times the GMV. The guys in Egypt already reached uh, $150 million annual GMV. So their valuation is about 450. So they could raise again $55 million. Uh, so obviously they will probably use this money to expand outside uh, Egypt and they will probably uh, come uh, in the countries in which I'm going. So obviously that could be uh, one of the challenges, but still there is the market still need to be educated and there is room for everyone. So I would rather have uh, a small uh, size of a big uh, pie than a whole big uh, small pie uh, for myself. So I am pleased. I am welcoming them to come help me out uh, educate the, the the market and get it to become bigger so that's a first challenge okay a second a second challenge is obviously to uh it's not because you've raised money that you will succeed and usually those who raise money try to use it to grow fast but they don't look at unit economics myself i don't want to burn cash too fast i want to use this cash either to buy uh, other companies that have already uh, reached uh, break even or uh, keep growing on what I'm doing while keeping great unit economics. Uh, so a real challenge is to grow fast, to be still sexy, as you said earlier, for VCs, while not burning uh, too much cash, cash. That's a second challenge. And the third? A third challenge is obviously the fact that the geography is quite difficult in a sense that uh, first we are in Africa, then we speak French. The World Bank used to say that French-speaking Africa are the toughest market in the world, which is true. Why is that? Uh, the infrastructure is not always good. The currency keep moving every day. 
um, the laws and regulation also uh, are are moving. So um, yeah, that's that's a third challenge that we are, we are trying to face. You know, in all the challenges you laid out for your business, I, I can't help but think, how about the challenges for your customers, right? So these 200,000 small mom and pop retail shops, I mean, how will they compete with the likes of Carrefour and the other multinationals as they come to Morocco and take market share themselves? Uh, so what we want to become, if I had to sum it up, is the first digital uh, central purchasing body. We want to get rid of all the middlemen and become the only middleman between the shop owner and the multinationals. If we can do that, we will bring the power between the hand of the buyers because they will start buying all together. We aggregate them. So we scale and can obviously negotiate better prices with the suppliers. And therefore, these small guys who before were buying independently and not buying at good prices will end up buying at better prices and obviously uh, will start selling at good prices, which will make them be competitive uh, regarding to the big supermarket chains. Yeah, you know, I remember growing up in the U.S. as Walmart was getting bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger. And whilst it meant lower prices for the consumer, it also meant the mom and pop shops on Main Street were, well, dying off. I guess you want to keep that from happening in Morocco, don't you? Exactly. I feel, you know, there are, I told you there are, there are 200,000 shop owners in Morocco, families behind. These guys are super smart. Unfortunately, they don't have tools to help them manage their daily life. We are developing for them a bunch of tools, helping them basically improve the way they work. And we are helping them becoming not only grocery stores, but also added services stores in which they will be able, uh, where you will be able to do some cash in, cash out, where you will be able to send money to your grandmother that is still living in the countryside and so on and so on. So... Yes, our today endeavor uh, is to have impact on the society by helping these guys uh, modernize and survive uh, to uh, this uh, digital transformation. And we believe that we are succeeding in doing this. And succeeding in generating a lot, a lot of value for your shareholders. But more importantly, building value for Morocco and Ismail. You've got one hell of an impressive, inspiring story, man. Thanks for your time. Thank you, bro. That was Ismail Bakhayat from Shari. Not from Silicon Valley, but from Casablanca, Morocco. New episodes of the podcast are released every other week, so be sure to subscribe to, share, and rate and review Not From Silicon Valley on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.